Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast. This is our third podcast in the new series. It's also the last of our Indie Fringe interviews. And today we have Lauren Nimi. And Lauren is uh, the second of the three that we've done who identifies himself as a storyteller, which is a phenomenon that we haven't really talked a whole, whole lot about on this show. Um, but I suspect we're going to be seeing more and more of that as we move forward. Really focusing on the oral tradition of storytelling. Um, things like the moth and that whole genre of uh, constructing stories, telling stories, having people interact with stories. What was fascinating to me in this conversation, instead of a writer, as a writer, um, I learned by reading people who have been gone for a long time. Fitzgerald, Hawthorne. Um, Melville, people like that. And so we, as Lauren and I were going down this path, I kept asking, like, how do you archive? Like, are you ever going to write these things down? Is this like something that you want to do? And he kept saying like, no, it's like storytelling is really in the moment. It's with the audience, it's with the people. And it's not a thing that I really worry too much about. Like he documents it, he records it, but it's not a, it's not a thing. And that's fascinating to me because as a writer, I don't necessarily think anybody's going to read my stuff in a hundred years, but I know that I learn to write by reading people who don't exist anymore. And so outside of the notion of storytelling as something that happens um, live and on stage, there's also this idea that it's not archived and not um, constructed in, in, in the same way that books are. So, I found this conversation to be fascinating and you'll hear um, we are, we approach these worlds very differently. Um, and that led to what I think is a really interesting conversation. Um, sometimes it cross purposes with each other. Sometimes I think uh, we weren't necessarily hitting the same note together. Um, and then there would be times that we would come together and totally understand what we were each uh, talking about. So that in and of itself, like just the construct of the conversation became really interesting to me as it was happening. So uh, I'm looking forward to you hearing me talk with Lorne Neamey, and that's going to happen right now. So we were just having a conversation and we're going to start here and then we'll work our way back Uh, because this idea of storytelling didn't exist in the 80s and stuff as I was coming up. So this is primarily what you do. You call yourself a storyteller. What does that mean? Well, okay. So 
being a storyteller for me means that um, I'm prime, I'm committed not only to to language, but I'm committed to oral language, and more importantly, I'm committed to the fact that as human beings, we have to organize chaos. And the way we organize chaos is through story. We're constantly telling stories. It is the basis of religion. It is the basis of politics. It is the basis of, of you know, when I'm teaching storytelling, when we get to the section on mythology, I say, okay, you know, I have students go, oh, what myth? That's, that's that old stuff. And I go, really? And I reach into my wallet and I pull out a $1 bill and a $100 bill and I hold them up and I say, what is this? And they all go, money. And I go, really? What is this? And eventually we get around to it's paper. Right. And then it's like, which piece of paper would you rather have? You know, the $1 bill or the $100 bill? And finally, they'll say the $100 bill. And I go, why? And they go, because it has value. And I say, and that's myth. Right. You know, the idea that this piece of paper has more value than this one does is the epitome of myth. Right. So, <laughs> so you said oral. Is it large? Is, do you work with writing or do you work with, like, do, do you work with writing stories first and presenting them? Or is it? I actually go the other way. Um, most of the time I begin with oral stories and eventually some of them become written. Uh, so I've got, I've done two books that have been published so far. One book is a book called Inviting the Wolf In, Thinking About Difficult Stories. I wrote that with Elizabeth Ellis and it's about the fact that there are stories that are hard to tell and hard to hear and they're absolutely necessary that they be told and they be heard. And so in that book, every, all the stories that I put into that book were stories that I had been telling as an oral form, you know, long before they ever there was ever a necessity to write them down mm -hmm. and for publishing purposes. The second book I did is a book called um, The New Book of Plots, mm -hmm. and it's about the use of various narrative plot forms. Um, and it, if inviting the wolf in is the theory, um, the book of plots is the practice. You know, how do you how do you then tell, talk about these difficult stories? And so I've got these ten plot forms you can use, and I go through their strengths and their weaknesses and give examples. And again, all of the stories in there that I use, which come out of my repertoire, all started off as oral stories, were all performed as oral stories long before they went into the, the written form, simply because part of what I believe in as a storyteller is is that the difference between storytelling and theater is in when you're in theater, you're pretending to be someone else, somewhere else, some other time, and you're pretending the audience isn't there. But as a storyteller, I'm very much, I'm here in this room now with you as the audience. I'm talking to you. And so even though I might tell a story which has a central core or a central theme, which is fixed, the specifics of the story is dependent on who the audience is in this moment. Mm -hmm. And so whether there's more detail or less detail, whether I'm faster or slower, the, the experience of telling is so particular to the gestalt of us now. So do you write on stage? Like if it's, you said it's before it's written down, do you write it on, st like on stage? Like are you just practicing it speaking? Like, or are you sort of giving yourself beats that you need to hit? Like, how do you construct without writing? Um, lots of practice. <laughs> Years of practice. Uh, so, um, most stories have a central theme and what they have is a series of images. And so, I can go from image to image. Let me give you an example of a little short story. So, 
I was in fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up. I was in the classroom. It was a spring day. It was warm. It was boring as it could possibly be. There was a blue-nosed fly up against the window. He could not get out, but he was exactly where I wanted to be on the way out. I wanted to be outside on the playground. I wanted to be on the street. I didn't care what was happening in the classroom. When all of a sudden, the nun who was teaching said, Tommy Alvarez, come up here. And everyone stopped and everyone looked because Tommy Alvarez was the kid in the back row in the corner. He was the kid who had been held back twice, maybe three times. He was older than all of us. He should have been in high school, but he still was in fifth or sixth grade. He got up and went up to the front very slowly. There, she handed him the shock and she said, work this math problem. And he took a look at the board and it was clear he did not know how to do the problem. He had no idea. And he stood there and she said, work the problem. And he reached into his pocket and out came a knife. Out came a switchblade knife. Snap, just like that. And he turned to her and said, no. And he shook the knife at her. And that nun, without hesitating, put one hand on top of his on a chalk and the other hand on top of his with the knife and she said, Tommy, you have to choose. Now's the time. You can choose the chalk or you can choose the door. And there was a look on his face. But more than that, there was a stillness in the classroom. There was a stillness that was so complete that even the fly had stopped buzzing. And he waited. She took the knife out of his hand put it on the desk. He took the chalk out of his hand and put it on the board and he walked out of the door and we never saw him again not in that classroom. And she called up someone else and said, work the problem. And the world went back to the way it was supposed to be. But it was never the same. So is that a real story? Or is yeah. that one you just made up now? No, that's a real story. That's based on a real event. But in that real event, I've removed all the extraneous over the years of telling it. I've gotten down to the image of the fly, the image of Tommy, the image of the nun and the, and the confrontation with the two hands, the image of, you know, the stillness. I mean, that story has four or five very specific images. And so no matter how I tell it, I will come image to image to image. <laughs> so, uh, and then I want to go back to, uh, I just got back from New Mexico, which I love. Uh, so when I write as a writer, like those, I would call those beats. Like right. there are like right. very specific beats that went, and then when I talk about the story, but I've already sort of worked out the beats in my writing. Like I don't know what they are until I put it all on the page mm -hmm. and then I begin to sort of sift through. You could teach me how to do that. Through oral storytelling, I, or like through it, we we could yeah we could um our language isn't quite the same, but we can arrive at the yeah, yeah. we can arrive at results e on either path yeah you know I mean if I think about beats if I think about um, the peculiarity of rhythms you know in my poetry there I'm much more concerned about those things I'm yeah. much more concerned about where the cadences fall sure. what the syllable counts are um, what the melt I had a, I, I met with a guy a while ago who wanted me to look at his poetry, and he showed me these written poems, and I, and I, I could not make sense of them. I said, "Read this to me," and he started to read it, and I realized that where his, where the accents and where his breath fell 
was nowhere near what was on the written page. And so I asked him, why do you write it this way if you don't speak it this way? And he said, he said, because it felt awkward. I went, what do you mean awkward? It, it should, what is on the page should feel natural in relationship to your breath so that you don't have to think about it. He said, he said, my breath feels awkward to me. And I said, you're never going to be able to be a poet. Right, right. <laughs> if you can't, if you aren't reconciled to your breath. <laughs> well, it's funny, uh, for years, as a, I went to graduate school for nonfiction journalism stuff. And so, I like, when I was young, before I was trained, I wrote a certain way. And then I sort of removed all of that as I started writing professionally in magazines and stuff. And, and since I left, this sort of old way of writing has uh, emerged, which is very, it's, there are, you'll read long what you would call paragraphs that are not sentences that are phrases. Mm -hmm. I'm an Appalachian. Like I grew up around oral storytellers. Like right. we didn't call it that. Like it's just, you know, people have told stories on the front porch right. and my writing when it's the most alive, you would not be able to diagram the sentences because many times they're not, but they read very much like someone sitting on the porch telling right. them to me. Right. So I've sort of taken that oral thing for, that's where I learned to write listening to those stories right because there's a beat to them right i mean as you say yeah you know there is right so the great value of orality is that it rises with the breath and it's culturally specific right yeah so you grew up in new mexico actually i grew up uh, i was born in northern minnesota i did grade school in new mexico junior high school in buffalo new york high school in minneapolis i have spent most of my life semi-nomadic i wind up in some place for four or five years and then I spend time elsewhere and then I'm back. And, yeah. you know, one, uh, of the, one of the great values of being a nomad is you can't get lost. Right, <laughs> right. Everywhere you're at is where you are. You are. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so uh, were your parents in the, was it military or they just moved no. around? Well, my father was a corporate guy who every time he got a promotion moved. You know, so um, my family, my family, my grandfather was a, was a wobbly in the mines and when the, when they had the strike of 1916, he got blackballed, and so he went to the lumber camps to organize, and he met my grandmother, who was the cook, and then they, they got 40 acres of rocks and hay and did a little farming, and my father used to deliver milk on the way to high school, and, um, you know, and so he started off, like, as a delivery guy, and then he became an office manager, and then he became a plant manager, and, you know, he was, basically, he was in the linen business all his life, which was, I mean, I grew up not knowing what a colored towel was, you know, or, you know, I mean, I thought everyone had napkins. There was always napkins at home, you know, cloth napkins, you know. You know. What did your mom do? <laughs> my mom was, a, my mother was a nurse. So she did that for many years. And do you have siblings? I have, I have one brother and four sisters. Wow. So, yeah. Where do you fall in the mix? I'm, I'm number one. So you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. That's so you right. were the trailblazer. In a manner of speaking. <laughs> As my youngest sister said, by the time she came along, there were no choices left except bad ones. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, do you, are you, like when you're in uh, middle school, grade school, like high school, were you writing, like reading? Like, what, what, what were you like in school? In, in, Who um, were you? One of, the, one of the things about school was that um, both in grade school and in, particularly in junior high school and in high school, you know, I was an, the outsider, and so there, I was an observer. Uh, in terms of writing, the, the most precious moment, the greatest gift I had as a, 
as a as a writer come actually there's two of them that one in high school I had a guy by the name of Bill Duffy as my English teacher Bill Duffy and Robert Bly did the 50s press and then the 60s press you know there's a poem about uh, I think it's a I think it's a James Wright poem about you know being on Bill Duffy's farm right so um, and Bill Duffy, as an English teacher, was good because he brought in James Wright. He brought into the classroom, you know, um, poets, and you got to—I got to hear live language, you know—and it was—it was such a gift. Then, when I was in college, I had occasion in the summer of '67, '68, to sit in a class that John Berryman taught. And it was a bizarre class because Behrman was heavily drinking in that period. A lot of times when he would come into the classroom, he would be under the four sheets to the wind or under the weather, hungover. You know, and it was uh, the University of Minnesota. The classroom was not air conditioned. It was oh, hot. It was sweaty. <laughs> There's this little blonde. I remember this little blonde sat in the front of the class doing her nails. You know, every single class I wanted to strangle the woman. <laughs> but, but Behrman would start in reciting Yeats or reciting Keats or reciting the, reciting poetry from memory. And as soon as he would begin, the, the buoyancy and the joyousness of language and the voice would soar up. And it didn't make any difference if he was drunk or hungover. Inside the poem, he was alive. And, you know, that was a great gift in terms of talking about the power of the oral. So you you say you're an outsider as a like an observer, right? Like, so you didn't um, not didn't play sports or weren't in theater, like oh no, do? no. On the other, I did I did like football for one season. Yeah, it was and it, it taught me everything I needed to know about yeah. football. <laughs> I played one year in eighth grade, and everybody hit me, and I thought this is awful. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, I'm never going to be a quarterback. I'm yeah. never going to be one of the ends. Or, yeah. you know, a running back. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a tackle for the rest of my and I I have no interest in being yeah. a tackle for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, where did you go to college at? So um, I, I entered the Christian Brothers, mm -hmm. the religious order, right? And so I went to college at St. Mary's, St. Teresa's, Winona State, all in Winona, the University of Minnesota, um, Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, plus uh, some minor stints along the way at University of Chicago and. And so you did you did a semester at a time and take the world tour. I I did I did many semesters either simultaneous. I kept transferring credits back, you know, and so I would be in various places and it was great. I mean, it was it was a lovely. I I wound up with a double major in philosophy and studio arts. You know, two completely um, prepare you for nothing. Right. <laughs> so what was the or prepare you for everything? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. What is the, um, you're in college and why, like, that's a path that not a whole lot of people would chart through their university. Like, what were you, what were you trying to do? Or were you just exploring? Like, what was happening? Well, because I was a member of a religious order, I had to do the philosophy theology piece. Mm -hmm. um, the, at that point, I thought of myself more as a visual artist than I did as a writer. Really? So, yeah. I mean, when I thought about my, Path, what I wanted to, what I really wanted to do was become a, a fine art printmaker, and most of my work in studio arts was around printmaking, um, which was why I was at the University of Minnesota so much of the time studying with Carl Bethke and you know, Zygmunt Friedi, who were great printmakers. But 
what does a printmaker what would you what what did you want to make what i wanted to um it's, I, okay, so there's this guy by the name of Malcolm Myers who is both a, who was both a watercolorist and a printmaker, who was a who was a wonderful guy. And he once said to me, he said, the the thing about printmaking is is you get to make the world in layers. And so, so what does that mean? What it means is that, um, what it means is that, when you think about printmaking, you're thinking about not only things backwards but in in sequences. And so. You have to make very specific decisions about this applies to writing uh -huh. tremendously, right? You make very specific decisions about what appears when mm -hmm. and how they fit together. And so, uh, on a visual scale, you know, there's always the question of what colors in what order, what what kind of line, what what is the you know as you where's the mistakes in printmaking because there's always little bits and flaws. Mm -hmm. And then um, writing had always sort of floated around on the side during all of this time. Well, I would expect with philosophy, it was there was, you were doing a fair amount of it. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. Well, yeah. I was <laughs> more doing, than floating around. Well, I, when I'm thinking about writing, I'm thinking about more the poetry, sure. the poetry yeah. and the, you know, the storytelling. But yes. Yes. Huh? How much did the philosophy and the visual arts, like, why do you think, because I see those as connected. Right. Well, right? They like, are. They're like Very, deeply connected. They are. Very much so. One thank is you. about thank you for that knowing that right. Like well, I mean, that. one is about like I mean they're both about understanding and expressing right. uh, something that is hard to express and understand. Right. I'm assuming there weren't a lot of people double majoring in those two things. Though. No, no, there weren't. <laughs> so how do you think you ended up with like what was it that made you want to understand things in that way? Right. Like that's those are two different ways to approach understanding. Right. Okay. For me, I think it was a natural extension of having grown up being sort of transitory and on the outside because as an as an observer in grade school right when when you are the smartest kid in the room by default because you come from a different culture and the way you see or the way you approach what happens in the classroom is, is not the way the kids who have all grown up together do um, you know that inclination it's easy to have it carry over and when when you become, when you leave high school and you become, um, join a religious order, you know, by the very fact you've joined a religious order, you, you're an outsider. You, it's, and then inside the religious order, I was still an outsider. Right. Cause, you know, because I was highly political. And, you know, <laughs> as I said in my fringe show, you know, I entered as a Catholic, I left as a bad Buddhist with an FBI file. <laughs> so. so you've been trying to unpack things. Like this is a. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm always. I'm always interested in what is the what is the experience, what is the way we perceive the experience, what is it that we what meanings do we attach to the experience, what feelings do we attach to the meaning, not necessarily the experience, but to the meaning. <laughs> and then, what does the visual art like that? That to me sounds like the philosophy. Right. What but is the, the, well, the visual art? The visual art it becomes in the. Right now, I'm working. I've been asked to write another book. And the book I've been asked to write is on character and situation. And it comes from a complaint that writing teachers have had that I've heard uh, where they say, oh, we got all these students who know how to write plot, but none of them know how to write character. They don't know how to make a world in which the plot happens. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the world of nuance. It is the world of creating visual through language. It is the world of, you know, when you can say, 
he entered a dark room, and that's one thing. Right. But you can say, as he entered the room, the shadows folded in upon themselves, and in that unfolding that came with his moving through the space, he realized that the room was smaller than he thought. Right, <laughs> right. It, it's, inter it's funny, I was just writing, a, for Bad Jobs and Bullshit, I just wrote a piece about working third shift at a gas station, and a lot of it was like Nathaniel Hawthorne. Like, it was all light and dark and where that stuff... Right. Because that's where... Like, I, that's, that's what that's what the experience right. is, really, when you observe it. Right, exactly. And it is that sort of like... It, seeing just to the outer rim of where the light is and as it fades into darkness and knowing that was always where I wanted to be. Like, I don't, most people are afraid of that. And I thought, yeah. well, no, that's where the, I can see this. I'm not interested in what right. I can see. Right. Like everybody can see right. that. It's the edge of shadow. Yeah. Where it gets interesting. That's where I find things. So, um, so you're doing, uh, the double major and you're in, so, Tell me, Elise said, Elise is my graduate assistant who's helping me assemble all these things. So tell me about the religious order. Like, how does that, what is that, how does that, because you can't end with Buddhist and an FBI file and expect that, because I'm assuming this is all connected, at least for you in right. some way. Right, it is. In terms of storytelling and writing and unpacking things. Right, and, and, and in terms of story, I mean, this is all fodder for stories, clearly. Um, so, I mean, Entering the, entering the religious order was, I mean, if I came down to it, it wasn't really about being Catholic. It was about wanting to live an authentic life and, and, and uh, have meaning um, and to do something well, to do something that made, that made sense in the world. And, you know, and I have. I mean, I've spent years as a community organizer. I've spent years working. Mean, and in community organizing, I've always sort of been, um, there's this continuum with art on one end and politics on the other end. And always shifting back and forth mm -hmm. back and forth between the two but never outside but never outside i know but always well, i always come back to one or the yeah. other as as the place to the place to work the yeah. place or as i said to someone you know when i work with organizations it is the puzzle of the organization that interests me how does an organization create culture mm -hmm. how do, and and not only culture externally in terms of what they do in the world, but culture internally, in terms of how people see each other, mm -hmm. what is the what is the organizational story? What is the story? And if I actually look at organizations, it's like there are four kinds of stories that exist inside every organization. There's the the organizational story, which is the the founding story, the history story, the mission story. There's the personal story, which is how the hell you got there. Right. You know what is it that keeps you there? What is it that provides meaning in terms of the actual work? Right. Then there's the metaphoric story, which is in, in the most crass kind of commercial way is the brand, uh -huh. you know, uh, but it also is, you know, how is the organization from a larger frame, how is it uh, an artistic frame, how is it seen or how does it talk about itself in, in non-specific ways? And then finally, there's the ritual story, which most organizations are completely in denial of. You know, which is right. which is uh, where we actually get to see culture in operation. You know, it's like how are you welcomed into an organization? How do you how do you right. leave an organization? What do you celebrate? Well, you know what? Um, yeah, so it's all that interests me. <laughs> yeah, the placemaking. Yeah, it, my wife does work with placemaking, and she has taught me in the five years we've been together how important. Because I I was never like that. I was like, you just show up, you do the work, you leave. Like that's that's what you do. <laughs> and she was like, that's. That's not what you do. Like you do all that stuff because of the placemaking that happens, and you right. care, and things matter right. because of the placemaking. So when you say enter a religious order, do you mean 
working to be a priest? No, I was never interested. In, I should have been a Jesuit if I was interested in that. But I, I no, I was interested in being a, a Christian Brothers were a, a lay Catholic religious order that primarily taught, and I was more interested in the teaching than anything else. Gotcha. So, so because I, you know, I'm still teaching. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you finished college. I finished college. And what do you do then? With a philosophy so, and visual arts. So I finished college. I spent one year teaching art in a Catholic high school. I spent four years working with juvenile justice offenders while I lived on a commune. I became a community organizer for the city of Minneapolis. I go to work for the Minneapolis Arts Commission. And in 1978, I'm sitting at a conference, uh, an arts conference in Madison, Wisconsin. And this lovely little blonde woman who I want to date leans across the martini and says to me, what is it that you actually do? And without really thinking too much about it, I say, I'm a storyteller. I help people identify, organize, and tell their stories. And as soon as I said it, I realized that it was true. It described both the community organizing piece, sure. but more importantly, it described the, the way we talk about the world piece, the way we observe it. So, so you hadn't really thought about it in those kinds of terms? In those kinds of terms, no. But as soon as I said it, and as soon as I sort of came out of that closet and acknowledged it as storytelling, I began to see how I had been prepared for it. <clears throat> and more importantly, I had a series of experiences that reinforced it. In 1981, I, had, I spent a year as the humanities scholar in residence in northern Minnesota, and I was being paid a, a, a fabulous amount of money in, in those days to sit in bars and cafes and church basements and collect stories, take photographs, document the culture as it went from industrial to tourist-based, and talk about it publicly. Then in 1983... That was your job? That was my job. What an amazing job. Yeah, I know. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Then in 1983, I began. I worked with In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mass Theater and did what was known as the Circle of Water Circus, which was a puppet circus combining traditional circus elements and puppetry the history of the Mississippi River from the beginning of time to the present moment and a tour that went from the headwaters of the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, eight months, 42 people, 27 cities, complete insanity, and stories enough to last a lifetime. <laughs> so that was the job after sitting in bars and collecting stories. Yeah, that was, that was right, right. So have you at some point looked back and thought, I mean, this is not a path that like when you sit down and oh, talk I, to people, yeah. like this is not a path that other people are like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. I, I did the same thing. Yeah, I know. I, I very, <laughs> meet very few people who have taken yeah. this path. And I recognize how absolutely lucky I am. You know, I'm a lucky man. But is it luck? I don't, I don't believe in luck. Well. You've charted this. I, I mean, in as much. I've made, let me put it this way. I've made, I've always made choices for the mystery. <laughs> right. And for the puzzle, as opposed to what made financial sense. Yeah. Or what made, you know. Easy sense. Yeah. I was just told last night that uh, I usually stay in a place for three or four years and then I get itchy. And the guy I was talking to said, like, you give off the three to four year vibe. Like, that's about <laughs> all. Like, anything after that, I feel like I start to know a thing and then I'm less interested once I start to know it. Yeah. I'm interested in the thing I don't know. Yeah. Right. So you're on the puppet theater. Um, when does the storytelling for you become... I mean, you run workshops now. Like, it's a bit... So, right. Well, it's your business now. Right, yeah. So, at the same time, I'm doing, you know, in these in this period from 81 through 83, 84, 
I'm also doing school residencies, libraries, church gigs. I, I start to um, explore the whole notion of um, storytelling as sort of art performance. Mm -hmm. So when you say gig, that's what you mean, like beginning to do yeah. original things right, right. that are yours. Yeah, right, and touring, you yeah. know, as a storyteller. So when I, when I did a decade's worth of uh, arts and schools in uh, Minnesota, in Wisconsin, uh -huh. in North Dakota, in Iowa, and in... When you say school, you mean like high schools, middle schools? High schools, yeah. middle schools, right. Because back in the 80s, like a storyteller, like we, at the Appalachian festivals, there was always the Appalachian story. Like right. that was where, it wasn't right. like today where there was, that's a... You can. There are performance venues for right. which you can go see exactly. this. Exactly. The performance venues were middle school. Right. So and I did middle schools. And right. I, and libraries. I, I actually, and, I actually like working with middle school kids a lot because they they're 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 just smart enough to get it and they, yeah. and then at the same time they're you know you, you want to just push them. A yeah. Bit. <laughs> I taught middle school for a year and it was my I always tell kids exactly that like my favorite year was eighth grade because they still wanted you to hug them, but they also were smart enough you could do real things with them. That's right. Um, and it's just, it's, you can harness that hormonal... Energy. Yeah, yeah, you can make them do amazing things. Right. So you're doing that. So I, I'm doing that. Um, here's here's an important little piece. So in starting in 1980, in 83, while we're on tour with, with uh, Heart of the Beast, um, Kevin Kling, who's a well-respected storyteller and often associated with National Public Radio, and a guy by the name of Michael Summers, who's a brilliant um, puppet artist and madman, and I, the three of us started working together as a performance art trio called Bad Jazz. <laughs> and we actually worked together and performed for 25 years, including gigs in New York at PS122 and the Atlanta Arts Festival and six years worth of appearances at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis and, you know, doing shows like Decadence and shows... Uh, Every show had a theme. Every show was site-specific. Every show combined music, storytelling, um, object theater, and incredibly bad tap dance. <laughs> so. so what prompts that? Like, how, does the, how do you guys get together and say, this is a thing? We started off, it started off as a necessity, as Heart of the Beast, as the tour was moving further south. People didn't know who we were. And so to help drum up and promote the show, we would, we would be... Here's three guys with a snare drum and a, and a French horn or a, uh, a trumpet, you know, standing in a Kmart parking lot wearing white shirts and bow ties and black pants. And they're playing music and I'm, I'm riffing off of the music and handing out two for one ticket offers. And the cops are rolling by and looking at us and people think that we're some kind of bizarre religious cult, you know. And it's kind of like we go, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is good. And later on, we we later on we turn that into theater, and around particular themes: catfish, beer, barbecue. Um, the, the classic phrase is three men playing to the best of their ability, offering a dollar's worth of sweat for a buck." <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, how do you start writing the like? Is how do you start writing the show? Like, how do you? What we what we would do is, or is um, it improv? And we would well we. To create the show, we start off improving. Every show has a, had a theme, and so we would all write to the theme. We would all bring in bits, and then we would begin to rehearse them out. Um, first, we rehearse them out for a sequence that makes some kind of sense. And then the, 
And then the uh, rule of thumb was is that the two of them could make me laugh that stayed in the show because I don't laugh out loud very often. At least in those days, I didn't. And so, um, you know, and then from there, it's just a matter of, by the time we get on stage, it looks like it's totally improvised mm -hmm. and the moment, but it's not totally improvised. The, to bring a little sail, a, a little steamboat across the stage and have it have myself standing with an umbrella, and as soon as the steamboat passes in front of me, for to open the umbrella and have snow fall down on the steamboat, to create that image is very specific, mm -hmm. you know, and is you know it's both absurd and beautiful, but it you know it's exactly what we want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. so did you start at that point thinking? That, that was that your career was that going to be or is that just a thing that you guys did it was a thing we did i mean to do it for 25 years is a long time to do it right and we probably would still be doing it except we each of us had other other stuff happening and so we you know it got harder and harder to find time to work together michael summers still wants to do um, you know a bad jazz funeral in which we would take the old props and put them on a funeral pyre and burn mm -hmm. them and, and then have a wake <laughs> you know so when does, like, what is happening with writing through this? Like, are you... So what is happening with writing during all of this time, you know, I'm, I'm creating stories, I'm crafting stories, I'm telling stories. Uh, in, but not writing them, right? Like, these are things you're producing well, orally. I'm produ well, I'm producing orally, but then eventually some of them get written. But all um, during this whole period of time, I'm also writing poetry, mm -hmm. and, you know, some of which eventually gets published, and much of which is still sitting there waiting. You know. um, and I still write poetry. I write, I try to, I'm trying to create poems, you know, every week I'm trying to write. Is know. that your primary, like when you write, do you, is that sort of how you think? It, um, it's, it's the easiest. It's the most portable way, mm -hmm. you know, to, to approach the world. There's an economy in poetry that, is not in the oral story. In the oral story, there's much more you know, fleshing out and mm -hmm. detailing. In the, in the poems, I can get to something that's more abstract and more uh, has the, uh, the economy of beauty. So in that sense, the oral stories are about philosophy and the poems yeah. are about visual no, art. I was just about to say the same thing, right? Yeah, like right. the poetry is very clearly the extension of the visual art. It's right, the layers of exactly. the language. And it's interesting as, a, as someone that does nonfiction, um, I would have thought that the stories lend themselves more to narrative writing than sort of fleshing out themes and ideas in poetry. But that's you largely operate either in the oral or in poetry. Is that? I'm, I think it's fair to say. I'm I mean, not that you don't do other stuff. I'm, but, I'm, I'm operating in both. Yeah. But you do the books as sort of a the books aren't a primary driving force for you. You don't no, think the, like the how book, the books are accumulation of other things that have you know, yeah that I've been working on. Um, but do you ever collect the stories and, like, do you want to take the oral stories and publish them? Or are they really crafted in such a way that they are? I've been deeply resistant to that. And I'm, by the same, for the same reason, I'm deeply resistant to doing CDs. Or, um, I mean, I document all my performances. I'm very careful about documenting them. But I, I, I don't want to put out a product where people say, oh, I want to hear this story this way. Right. I want them to have the experience of the story as opposed to the specifics of a story. Yeah. So Casey and I were talking about um, art 
and specifically like the two kinds, right? There's polished, which you see in the IMA, and then there's sort of the raw, unfinished, broken stuff that I tend to like. Mm-hmm. Because it's in that brokenness that you get to have the discussion about what it means to you. If it's if if, if it's a perfect product, you're experiencing it. And if if I'm if I hear you, that oral storytelling is the broken, right? It is different every time. It is specific to the people that are hearing it. And what may work here isn't going to work here. Like there's not a way to craft that in a way that is universally a finished right. product. Yeah. So, so as an example, I've done fringe performances since 1995. So you do the circuit? like I've done a number of different, yeah, I've done, you know, usually I try to do two to three fringes mm-hmm. a year. There are three shows that I, that I particularly enjoy. Um, the one I just did here, Bad Brother, which is the first time I've rolled it out. But now that I know that it works, you know, I can do two, three years of it with uh, other, um, you know, with other fringes. Um, for the last for the last five or so years, I've done a show called Fata Morgana, which is actually a huge story that's ultimately will be in written form. Uh, it has four different beginnings with four different characters, and and it has five different endings. Um, and I give literally I start by giving the audience a choice of who they want to start with, and depending on who they start with, it takes us into the halfway point at which point they make another choice, and that takes us to one of the five endings. You know, there's about two and a half hours worth of material in a fringe. You can do 50 minutes, so I can go and do a small slice of the big story. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to, at some point, do the whole written story with all of the things sort of neatly entwined. Could you do that? It sounds nonlinear in its nature. Um, all the stories are interconnected in my own head. Right. You know, I, I can make all of it work, yes. I know you could, but when you do that, wouldn't you immediately think, well, this is only one of the possible 20 outcomes that this, like, you, that could be 20, right? Do they all sort of end differently? They all, they the ex- all, they all yeah, the, the five endings are very different. Right. I mean, and it, it all depends on which characters the audience wants to do particular So things. that's what I mean. If you write it, yeah. you then lose that, right? Well. Or unless you do five volumes. Or. Maybe maybe you don't actually bind it as a book. What you do is you you create each path and lets the audience mm-hmm. you know, mix and match. You know, like like, like the old choose cards. your own adventures. Yeah. yeah, choose your own adventures. The other one though, um, the other piece that I've done a lot, which is actually most theatrical of all the performances pieces I do, is called Moby Dick Tonight, and <laughs> it's a meditation on when I've read Moby Dick, as well as sort of an examination of what is that book that you know everyone. Get, you know, if you're in high school or in college, at some point you're assigned to it. Most people never finish it yeah. because it's just terrible. It is, it is a glorious mess. Yeah. You know, or someone said it's the funniest novel ever written in America, but you know they were pretty perverse. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I've never gotten through it. It's uh, Melville just drives me crazy. I've I, I've I've read it like five times now. So really, yeah, yeah. And Moby Dick Tonight as a performance is a lovely performance because I get part of what it's about is is in what way am I these characters? In what way am I um, Ishmael? In, right. where, in what, right. When am I Ahab? When am I the whale? Right. <laughs> you know. So we got we had just a couple more minutes left. So at what point does, do you say, okay, I'm a storyteller and that's going to be my, that's going to be my job. Like that's the thing that I am I've said and that, that I do. I've, I, I've said that for what, 30 
35, 38 years So even back in the 80s, like, as soon oh, as yeah. you told that girl that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that every job I've ever had, every paying gig, every, I mean, I've done a work with fundraising. I've done work with political messaging. I've worked, you know, I've done lots of things that are pol political or arts organizational based. And in all of those things, it was essentially a storytelling mm -hmm. piece. It but was a, it was about you know making the story real. But I'm looking at the business card, right? And it says storyteller, performances, right. workshop, training, coaching, directing. Yep. Like that's what you've been doing for 35 yep, years. Exactly. All of those things. All of those things. So, what's the most when you think of yourself? And then we'll get out of here. When you think of yourself in five, six, seven, eight years, what is the thing that you want to make next? I wanna. I want to make more and better stories. The world is the world is full of stories, and I I have such joy in finding them and telling them and helping other people find and tell them. That's you know I want to do what I I want to do what I've been doing and do it better and you know why not? So if you think about so as a writer, like you know I can go back and read something that's you know even though it was like if I read Homer, clearly that's an right. oral story that was then right. transcribed. What happens in a hundred years to the stories you're telling now? Um, you know what I mean? Like, how do they get some of them? Some of them may exist. You know, I mean, there's there's digital versions of many of these things. When I die, people can do what they want with them. They can put them in an archive. They can publish them. I don't. It doesn't make any difference to me. So you think about story really in the moment. I'm. I think about story as a process. It's a process that I go through. Internally, it's a process I go through with audiences or with students or with clients. You know, it's a process that's designed to say, here is the world, here's how the world operates, here's how we choose to talk about the world, here's, how, here's how, what it means to me, here's what it means to us, here's the joy and the value and the tragedy and the pain and everything about it. That's so interesting. As a writer, you, I just... I think, like, I always think, where's this going to be in the library in 100 years? Like, how can somebody... I have no concern, no interest. Of, no concern about 100 years. I'm only, I'm concerned about this week, next week, you know, next year. That's amazing. Thank you for coming in, uh, oh. and it was a great talking to you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Lauren. Um, it is also the end of our Indie Fringe interviews. Uh, as we move forward, you will hear a change in the audio. Um, it's been such a layoff that I forgot to hit the preference setting. That would have used our badass microphones. So the intro and the outro sound very good. And the middle was recorded by the computer. Thankfully, it's a new Mac, so that sounds okay. Um, but you are not crazy. I am an idiot. So you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes, but you can also go to thegeekypress.com. Um, there you'll find our podcasts. You'll find our calendar of events. We have monthly writing events in Indianapolis. We have quarterly and yearly writing retreats. We have reading series. So if you're a writer, you're coming through town, I don't care what kind of writer you are, um, let us know. You can either come to one of our events or if you have published something, we can set up a reading for you. 
Very happy to do that. We also have a new book called Bad Jobs and Bullshit, which is an anthology that we put out. Um, We had about 75 submissions from around the world. We narrowed those down to about 20 to 25 fiction, nonfiction, and poems and put that out thematically. They're about bad jobs and bullshit. Uh, We're having a a party uh, September 14th, I believe. You can find out on our meetup group or go to thegeekypress.com. Um, come join us in Fountain Square in Indianapolis if you're around. Either way, go to Amazon.com, search Bad Jobs and Bullshit, look that up. You can buy the book. You can also go to thegeekypress.com backslash books and find all of our books there. So that ends the first iteration of the second generation of this podcast. We are now three episodes into the new iteration and we look forward to more. Um, We hope you stick around. We hope you share this information out with your friends. And until we talk again, have a good day. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.